You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. I have to say that again. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is... July 6, 2023, it is 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. We've been talking uh, the last uh, couple of weeks about uh, relationship, secure functioning relationships, and then uh, how to actually build that social network, particularly if you're coming from insecure, disorganized backgrounds and uh, your experience of collaborative, secure functioning relationships uh, is a uh, newish or new phenomenon. The main thing about secure functioning relationships is that they're collaborative. You agree to take on the care of somebody else. You agree to take care of them in a way that they need to be taken care of. And you do it in such a way that they feel taken care of and they agree to take care of you in the way that you need to be taken care of, and they do it in such a way that you feel taken care of. And so you take on each other's care. Uh, The collaborative aspect of that is you actually teach each other how to take care of each other so that you're not uh, stumbling in the dark in that sense. You are willing to be authentic in the way that you need to be taken care of. You're willing to express that in a way that the other person can understand. And then you help them develop the skill set that they need so that they can take care of you in a way that settles uh, your sense of, of needing care. John Bowlby famously said, you're only as needy as your unmet needs. And so what you're doing there is figuring out what those needs are and taking care of them so that you uh, have a well-taken-care-of partner. Or the way to put that is you have a well-taken-care-of caregiver since their responsibility to you is to take care of you. So they, they see what it is that you need, they take care of it, and so that your needs are also met. So you're living in a social contract with with someone else or with a group of people where your needs are largely met and their needs are largely met. What that tends to do is free you up so that you can explore what has real meaning to you, that you can use time, energy, and resources toward that rather than toward uh, procuring basic care. That will making sense why that would uh, be useful. I like Robin Dunbar's research, and what he uh, discovered was that the most common orientation of relationship in the West is somebody who has one primary relationship, no close circle of friends, and then uh, a, a, a group of uh, people that are in the social community, but below the line in terms of telling them everything. So in the in this the way that he uh, talks about the structure, you have above the line people that you tell everything to, and below the line people that you tell some things to. 
he did also find out that that wasn't the happiest uh, formulation that people have. That people who like to have a primary relationship and have one, who also have a group of uh, close friends uh, that uh, contribute to their care, were the happiest and actually the freest to explore because they weren't dependent on one person to provide all of the emotional care that they needed. What happens if you rely on only one person to take care of you and they want to go off and do something on their own? What happens if you want to go off and do something on your own and your one person that takes care of you is also only relying on you to take care of them? It interferes with that ease of solo exploration because... Uh, we uh, went by kind of quickly. What? And um, I'm kind of glad that 4th of July is over. Are you talking to me? Explosions were... I think he wasn't. But if he was, he'll talk to me again. One of the things that uh, was interesting to me about Dunbar's work is the idea of how many people do you need to know uh, to feel uh, taken care of and supported so that you can explore. I think the understanding that really this human life that we're in is about finding out the things that we need to know so that we have a sense of meaning, a sense of fulfillment in being alive. And the better that we are at doing that, uh, the more uh, worthwhile uh, this uh, strange experience of being human is. I was walking Lucy the dog earlier today, and I was quite in awe at this whole thing that we've made. Um, um, the 4th of July, in Los Angeles is is a, an amazing explosive experience. Literally, everybody is lighting off fireworks. It it's this massive roaring, thunderous noise that goes on for hours. Um, it it has an adverse effect on dogs. I will say, Lucy gets quite frightened by it, but I do uh, marvel at the the. Um, the interest in that. Uh, I, I'm always somebody who has avoided loud noises <laughs> as a habit. Uh, I remember when I lived in New York uh, in the 80s, the 1980s, I lived in Chinatown and they sold uh, fireworks on all of the corners. And on 4th of July night, after uh, all of the sales had been completed, all of the different uh, illegal fireworks people would come and they would dump everything that was left in the intersection. And so you'd have this mound of firecrackers and bottle rockets and everything else, uh, you know, six or eight feet tall and filling the whole intersection. And then they would take a jerry can and throw five gallons of gas onto it and then they would light it on fire. And it would end up being this 30 foot, 40 foot tall, um, uh, 
lane that was exploding at the same time. It was really incredibly uh, spectacular. Awe-inspiring. So what is that sense of awe that you find in this human life is, that comes from exploring things? And do you have enough of it that you're willing to get out of bed and go on with this whole thing? One of the uh, things that uh, comes up over and over again in the newspaper is uh, the despair. The Lately, they've been calling it an epidemic of loneliness. Uh, and yet, uh, at the city, there's millions of people around, and yet we can still feel separated uh, and disconnected. So this idea of figuring out how to be in relationship and how to have enough relationships around you to support you uh, is something that has uh, real dividends in terms of how your exploration can happen. Do you have a ready sense of how many people you need to know in order to feel well enough supported? And are you active engaging in uh, supporting the relationships that you already have that that support you and and because of the nature of the human condition where everything is impermanent when you lose somebody do you have sources that you can then easily replace them not everybody of course wants to have a central uh, relationship some people are content with a group of uh, relationships not everybody is monogamous. Some people are polyamorous. So how do you consider organizing your social life since you are responsible for it? You're responsible for your exploration. Can you put in place the relationships that you need so that you are then free to find the things that are meaningful? And can you gather the time, energy, and resources that are necessary for you to devote enough time to doing it, that uh, it is uh, a life that isn't filled with despair or loneliness. I was talking to somebody about uh, loneliness <clears throat> uh, a couple of days ago, and uh, and he's somebody who is surrounded by people and is constantly engaging in relationships. So how is it that you can feel disconnected and lonely and even, and still be surrounded by people? And so we're coming again to this place of the willingness to express yourself authentically. What do we mean by authentic? We mean that you're willing to tell somebody else what your experience of the present moment is. That's all. Each of us has our conditioning, our perceptual database that we use to create the experience that we're having. We take in the sense data, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and mind. Mind is really the activity of selecting the things that you focus on, that you use to create the experience that you're having. We don't uh, take a neutral survey of what's in front of us and then create a sense of reality based on a neutral survey. 
we really do a highly curated uh, gathering of things that are our preferences. And then we use that uh, highly selected sense group to create the experience of conceptual reality. And if you don't mentalize well enough, you don't compare what's actually there to your, your preferred version of what's there. We don't know ourselves directly. We know ourselves through the experience of our self being reflected back to us uh, by our caregivers, by the people that we're in relationship to. When we're born, we, we come into the world without much in the way of a working model, a working understanding of what's actually happening. We don't have much in the way of a sense of self or much in the way of understanding others. And we learn about ourselves in the way that our caregiver reflects back to us their experience of us. And we begin to construct a working model of who we are based on their reactions to our expressions, our authentic expressions in those early, early days and weeks and, and months of experience. Where we get into trouble is when we lose track of their experience of us and uh, who we are. And we, we become convinced, and this is really easy to have happen, that we are who they think we are. We are who they see us to be rather than who we are. And so part of the unraveling of this puzzle is to begin to see clearly who we are, to see clearly what our needs are, to see clearly what interests us and has meaning to us and then begin to reorient our lives around that rather than the reflection of other people. Um, I did not have a good childhood, and so my childhood stories tend to be pretty awful. Um, but I can uh, give you an example of that. My mother told me when she was dying that she had this list of things that she wanted to say to me um, uh, so that she could get it off her chest and that she, she hoped that I would consider them and then forgive her. And one of the things that she said was that when I was uh, an infant, I was quite colicky and I would cry and cry and cry and, and there was nothing that she could do to quiet me down. And so... Uh, what she did was she put me in the back of the closet and buried me with clothes until she couldn't hear me crying. And that that was what she was able to do in that moment. I'm going to guess that she was in a postpartum depression. This would have been the 1950s, and I don't think they had enough support. Uh, certainly not somebody else in the household that would provide care. And I thought of myself as a as a, a, a an infant that was a few weeks old, <laughs> and what I must have thought being buried under a, a pile of laundry about the nature of the world. This is the earliest uh, formation of that working model of what you can expect from the world. 
and then also what I'm what I might expect in terms of care from other people. Um, I said to her that I forgave her that I that uh, that it must have been difficult for for her to uh, have felt the need to do it and must have been difficult to carry it all those years. And she said that the mo her response to me uh, saying that was that the most surprising thing about it was that it worked. I stopped crying. Now, what you understand about the nature of uh, uh, neglect of children is that there's a, a cycle that they go through. The first thing kids do, uh, infants do, to get care is they look as cute as they can. They they put this big smile on their face and they sort of vibrate with this uh, lovely energy. Uh, but if nobody comes, it's confusing to them because they've just put their big cute on and nobody responded to them. And then they they whimper. If nobody comes, they they intermittently cry. And if nobody comes, they continuously cry. And if nobody comes, they tantrum. But if you're buried under a pile of laundry, tantruming doesn't help at all. And so you slide over the edge of the cliff into what we call anaclyptic depression, which is where you just completely shut down all expression to preserve energy. It's a, it's a strong survival instinct that we have. And then that uh, somebody else could recognize that as a, a good outcome is a puzzle. But I think in this compassionate uh, window that opens when you hear about the, the difficulties of infants and their relationship to their caregivers, uh, uh, a, a sense of sadness for my mother uh, to be in that situation and a sense of sadness for myself to have uh, endured that. But it does create the working model of self that then arises each time you create conceptual reality so that uh, I notice in myself um, when, when, I, when I'm not careful and not mindful of the way that I create the world that uh, there's a, a default tendency to go with, I don't matter. My preferences don't matter. Whether I'm alive or not doesn't matter. This is the basis of the reality that I I lived for, for so long because that was the nature of how I understood myself in relationship to the world, which is other people. Everybody has their own conditioning. So what we begin to do is look at the nature of those experiences and understand how they form this model of self and this model of the world, what we can expect from the world, because it informs the way that we begin to organize uh, the things that we think that we can have, things that we don't think we can have, and how relationships are supposed to go. So one of the things that I think is useful in, in doing this work of shifting from insecure, disorganized uh, attachment strategies into or insecure, if you didn't start with the native security, is to understand how secure functioning relationships are supposed to work. And they're supposed to be collaborative. I started off talking about this 
you agree to take care of somebody else as your responsibility in the relationship, and you agree to collaborate with them where they teach you how they need you to take care of them, and then you take on the responsibility of doing that for them. And in a reciprocal collaborative relationship, they take on the responsibility of taking care of you. You collaborate with them to teach them how to do that so that you feel taken care of. And then they take on the responsibility of taking care of you. Is that making sense how that would work? So what's meaningful to you and what is actually productive care? Maybe the things that happen to you, the experiences that you've had in relationship. Uh, that you think are what you need may not actually be uh, uh, the best way to support you in the relationship and all, also you in the world exploring what uh, has meaning. So we also come with this default set of how to take care of things, how to handle things that, that we learn in childhood, in our family system. that early period before there's much influence of the outside world, we really take on all of these different strategies for emotionally regulating ourselves, uh, resolving conflict with other people, and how we think of ourselves and can be in the world. And then uh, if you end up going to school, some people are homeschooled, so they stay in the family system longer. But some of us uh, go to a school, you hit the playground, and then you have to take that family system, that family understanding, uh, and integrate it into a group of other children. And so you begin to have an alternative source of reflecting back to you who you are. You engage with other adults who are teachers, and they reflect back to you who their experience of you is. Sometimes it can be confusing that the reflections are so different than what you're used to. Sometimes it can be reinforcing. We're very social as animals. We create a social hierarchy. Every time we walk into a room and there's other people, we create a social hierarchy. We peg ourselves in the hierarchy where we think we fit. This doesn't mean that we're accurate in doing this. It's just what we do in order to understand the, the power dynamics of social groups. When you hit the playground, did people think you were hot stuff? Did they want to include you in everything? Or did they not think you were such hot stuff? Did they think you were different or strange and exclude you? <laughs> I'm uh, Dyspraxic, dys, uh, do you know what dyspraxic is? It means that you're clumsy, ultimately. Uh, you, you don't have much of a sense of balance. You have virtually no hand-eye coordination. This is not one of the great skills of the playground. <laughs> when you can't play sports very well, team sports, for instance, uh, they have less interest. So. Anyway, 
we all uh, have some understanding of what, what it is that happened. And it, it has a tendency to uh, reinforce the view of ourselves and also reinforce the view of the world. We would call this in Buddhism fixed views or self-limiting beliefs. When they become really uh, rigid, these beliefs about ourselves and what we can expect from the world we simply don't create versions of the world where the the possibilities are are that we don't think we are in it. Did you have a question, Edward? Um, why do you ask that? I'm just you're asking everyone, or what? Or did I no. say something or do something? You unmuted yourself. No, no, I didn't actually. I didn't. I don't know how it happened actually. Okay, all right. <laughs> I'm going to remute you. It's the uh, the ghost in the machine. So <clears throat> one of the things that secure people do is they offer a little bit of trust to somebody and see how they do with it. They do well well with it. They offer them a little bit more trust, and so that there's this slow development of relationships where you uh, offer somebody some trust, see whether they're reliable, see whether they do what they say they're going to do, see if they don't do what they say they're not going to do, uh, with low uh, value asks, and if they do well, you can increase the value. And over time, what you find is uh, you uh, begin to select people that are reliable, who do what they say and don't do what they say they're not going to do. And they do it consistently enough so that you don't have to worry about it. That's that sense of security that comes in. Let's have dinner. Great. When do you want to meet? Let's meet next Tuesday at 7.30 at this restaurant. Great. And then you show up next Tuesday at 7.30 and there they are don't even have to think about it because they're reliable and they do what they say. They don't do what they say they're not going to do. That's very different than an insecure relationship where you have to worry about it. Uh, you have to text twice a day to make sure they're still coming for four days because you can't hold the abandonment anxiety if they don't come. Uh, when they walk through the door, there's a blast of dopamine that just sends you flying because they've actually shown up or they don't show up. And then you're dashed on a blast of endorphins to kill the emotional pain that comes up from them not coming. That's very different than this security uh, lane, which is very even, very level. One of the complaints that insecure and disorganized people have about secure functioning relationships is that they're boring. There's no highs and lows. It's just even. People do what they say they're going to do, and they don't do what they say they're not going to do. And it's uh, and there's discussions that uh, resolve things, and people come to agreement, and then the agreements are honored. So when you're moving from insecure, disorganized relationships toward earned security, that's what you're really looking for. Because the emotional regulation of the abandonment here is so difficult for insecure and disorganized people, 
they tend to rush into intimacy too fast without actually evaluating whether the person they're rushing into relationship with is going to show up for them because they can't bear the abandonment experience. Is that making sense? When we, when we just uh, examine our culture without too much investigation, we can uh, easily understand that relationships are the center of meaning in life. And uh, I think that that actually isn't right. The exploration that you do, the activities that you spend your time in that have real meaning to you are the thing that make uh, life fulfilling. And relationships are meant to support you in being able to do that. So they're vital and essential to it, but they aren't a substitute for your exploration. And that you can be in relationship and you can uh, form relationships that actually act in a, in a way that inhibits your capacity to explore. Uh, and uh, I think that I often uh, see people, and I think that I've probably done this myself, engage in relationships that consume so much energy in stabilizing the, the relationships that there's no energy left for anything else. And that that is, that is a, a way of finding a use of energy that's uh, acceptab acceptably excuses the need to explore. I can't explore because there's no energy to explore. There's no energy to explore because uh, keeping uh, volatile relationships uh, working is what I can do. I think as life went on, and uh, which was, I've, I've not lived a life uh, where the, the patterns of things that happened to me were outside of what you would expect to happen to somebody who had the kind of conditioning I, I've had. It's been pretty ordinary. But in the mid to late 30s, the, the, the disappointment of volatile, unpredictable, unreliable relationships got so great that I, I simply decided not to have them anymore and uh, uh, moved into relationships that were almost exclusively not close, not intimate. I had a circle of friends, uh, but not uh, any particular group of friends or any uh, romantic entail and entanglements. This is a pretty ordinary outcome for disorganized people, which is how I started. This did not mean that people weren't interested in that with me. They were interested, and I knew that they were interested, but I was not interested in a life that was consumed by uh, emotional swings uh, caused by relationships. I wanted to actually do something that was more interesting. I do, however, find that uh, the auto-regulation experience uh, is really very inefficient in regulating. And so you don't get that much done, <laughs> even though it takes a really long time. <laughs> much better to have it to be uh, vital relationships 
that really are organized around supporting your exploration. Uh, the the example of that I always have is the I wrote a book called uh, The Lower Manhattan Dormitory Effect, which is a memoir of the year 1979 in New York. It took me 12 years to write it because the anxiety of writing it would get so great, uh, I would have to stop writing it. And then I, I've uh, written another book called Punch Outs, which I wrote in two years because I resolved the problem of uh, insecurity and formed relationships that were regulating. Whereas it might take me two, two weeks to regulate myself if I were distressed on my own, I can do it 20 in 20 minutes over the phone. I mean, it's, it's so completely different when you can begin to form these kinds of relationships. So that's this, that's why this attachment piece is so resonant with me. And I think also with people who uh, came out of their childhood experiences with, uh, they're less than ideal childhood experiences uh, <laughs> trying to understand this world that we live in. How could this how could this be right? Um, I didn't really have that thought, I don't think, as I say it. I was so uh, frightened uh, of being rejected and abandoned that I was very compliant in uh, what people needed from me and very reticent to make any demand at all because I was so afraid that it would be too much. But each of you have your own conditioning and each of you have arrived at a, an accommodation to what happened. And so uh, you need to look at your own uh, accommodations to the world. It is possible to uh, dissect the way that you create the experience of reality and move it into a place that's more in line with what's actually happening. Cindy? Um, I just wanted to ask real quickly, because I had a very similar experience to what you described. I had colic as a baby and my mother was overwhelmed and couldn't handle it. And so the story I heard is what she put me out in a bassinet on the front porch and hoped somebody would pick me up. Oh, and um, How long did she leave you there? So that was the story I somehow heard. And later in therapy, I invited her to therapy and I said, did you really do that? And she said, no, I wouldn't do that. So in my years of thinking about it in therapy and her denial, the only thing I could come up with is she thought about it or said it. Um, but what was surprising when you're telling the story is like, yes, my mother was overwhelmed. She couldn't handle a colicky baby. And um, so I wanted to, she somehow wanted to discard me and somehow emotionally I must've picked that up. But my question is, if people have that similar experience in babyhood, I mean, this is like right after you're born, right? For the, and it was actually written in her journal. She kept a journal. Oh. Yeah, of how bad the colic was. And she wouldn't stop crying for weeks. And um, so if people have that experience as babies, 
would they be likely to have the same insecure attachment as they grew older? Or would it vary? I mean, it seems like it would be the same or similar. Well, you have an 85% chance of having the same attachment strategy as your primary caregiver. If you had a disorganized caregiver who couldn't manage all of those feelings that arose mm -hmm. relationship to the infant, then it's likely you would learn from them that attachment strategy. Which would be disorganized? Um, well, whatever whatever it is, it is, it's interesting to me that when, so I'll give you an example. Uh, my friend uh, had uh, twins and they were colicky and she had help. But every now and then I'd get a call. The phone would, this is when we had landlines. I'd pick up the phone <laughs> and she would say, get over here and hang up. And I would get in my car and I'd drive over there and the door would open and a, a, a crying baby would be thrust into my arms. And uh, and then she would collapse on the couch and I'd look, uh, one time I looked over and the nanny was also collapsed on the couch and one of the twins was uh, asleep and the other one was just shrieking. And so uh, I, uh, in 20 minutes, got them, uh, got him to quiet down and fall asleep. The reason I could do that was because I was not tired and I could attune properly and constantly adjust in the way that the infant needed. And they were exhausted and couldn't attune at all. <laughs> she would never have considered any of those options. She would have just considered getting more help. That was a different orientation to, to the mothers that we had. Why wouldn't they have just gotten more help? They didn't get more help because their attachment system prevented them from having the kinds of relationships where people would just come help, I would guess. And that's how it's then handed down to us. But what do you make of your of that early experience of an infant whose need is to be comforted because the physical experience of the body is painful and then uh, having a caregiver who isn't able to meet the needs of the infant, then we're at the crux of attachment. Did your caregiver meet your needs well enough that you didn't uh, worry about it, or did they not meet your needs well enough so that you did worry about it? Yeah, in my case, there was an Aunt Grace <clears throat> who came and was the only one who could soothe me. So at least I had that. I don't remember her. I was an infant. I don't even know right. who she was. But there was somebody that, for a while anyway, that the infant could be passed over to and and could soothe me, whatever one we the, had. Yeah. One of the difficulties of the nuclear family, of course, is you run out of adults really fast. Uh, yeah. uh, um, faster than the, the care of the child is met. So the allo parenting situation tends to be helpful with that. Right. There's lots of adults around who can help. You know, uh, taking care of a newborn uh, infant is a lot of work. It, it's stressful and exhausting. And, uh, and if you don't have enough help, 
the it isn't uh, even surprising that a child's need will not be met. I have a sadness about my mother because I don't think that's what she wanted. But she didn't she didn't figure it out better than that. And so um I didn't have the skill set either uh, because I didn't learn it. Certainly not. It's not instinctual in that sense, right? We have to learn how to do these things. Uh, the good news, of course, is that you can learn to do it now. It's kind of a uh, pain in the patootie to have to learn it now, uh, but uh, it's certainly something that can be done. And so we begin with this. But I think really the main uh, thing that's different between secure functioning and insecure functioning is the speed in which people enter into relationships. Insecure people go really fast and they make agreements with people that have no real basis in the experience of the person because they they think that that will relieve the abandonment care that will relieve the terrible loneliness of feeling disconnected from people and what you have to be willing to do is present yourself authentically if you've if you've learned to be inauthentic it's not so easy to just switch to being authentic because there's a fearfulness in being authentic that started really early. We don't abandon our authentic expression willingly. It's an arduous, painful, awful process of our authentic expression being rejected over and over again and our having to pretend to be who it is that our caregivers wanted so that we could have care you could have a sense of uh, safety. And so when you begin to express yourself authentically, that expression is accompanied by the fearfulness of conditioning that is associated with it. So we begin this process of authentic expression and then seeing how that uh, is experienced by someone else. Secure people use delight as a barometer I make an, uh, an authentic expression of myself and I see whether somebody else delights in that authentic expression. But insecure people and disorganized people don't have that sense of delight as a barometer of evaluating who's a good bet and who isn't. Dismissing people have um, idealization, which is very different. They, I, they needed to idealize their caregivers in order to get care from them. And that was completely disconnected from what was actually the feeling experience of being in that situation. Preoccupied people are helpless or chaotic and demanding, and that's not really the best ground for delight to arise. Uh, so they don't know much about delight. And for uh, disorganized people who have often been abused, or exploited as children, they experience delight as a manipulation that's likely to re result in them being harmed. So we also have to repair delight as one of the currencies 
I mean that as an energy. One of the energies of relationship is delighting in the other person. Just a spontaneous reaction to the the activity of them and then them also having that sense of delighting in you. They just see you and light up because the, uh, they know, uh, you know, few minutes they're going to be regulated and and your sensibility agrees everything about it everything about the other person that you find magical so if you don't know delight then you have to learn delight so going slowly developing trust through actual experience learning delight in the other person So what do you think? Shall we do some meditation? Um, loving kindness or insight? You can put your votes in the chat. Or Carol, did you have a... Oh, insight. Okay. This is one boat uh, uh, baseball. <laughs> My vote is loving kindness. Huh? My vote is loving kindness. So we have two for loving kindness. What else? All right. Three for loving kindness. All right. Four for loving kindness. Sold for loving kindness. <laughs> Five for loving kindness. <laughs> Six. All right. Um, go ahead and take your meditation posture. I can get this bell to ring. So how did that go? All right. Tomorrow at 10.30, we're starting a new level two. If you want to join that, there's still space in it. Hop on. Uh, then what else am I doing? We are we're starting another level one on August 5th. So take a look at that if that's interesting to you. The 5th, the 12th, the 19th, and the 26th. And then we'll start Another level two on September 21st. That's on Thursday afternoon at 4.30. Then we're going to do yet another level one starting on October 7th. going to start another level two on November 14th. So we have the cycles of the classes coming up. If you want to jump on to any of them, uh, feel free. Um, 
I really appreciate your practice. Thank you for coming. Uh, I offer the teaching freely, um, but I do hope that you'll make a donation. If you have resources, there's a link on the website to do that. Any amount is appreciated. It helps support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. I hope to see you soon on the path. Uh, enjoy uh, the evening. Bye.